You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Good morning, everyone. If you would turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, this will be taking the text for our sermon today. It's a little dark up here. Is there normally extra light? Switch? Okay. I don't think of myself as being too old, but when you have small fonts and dim lights, it's kind of a bad combination. There we go. Thank you. Okay. We turn to Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. We're going to be taking our lesson from this passage today about the rich young ruler. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at these words, But Jesus said to him, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Let's pray. O God in heaven, we come before you this morning, and we are so grateful for this chance that we've had to sing praises to you and now to come to your word. We pray, God, as we open your word, that you um, open our minds and open our hearts, give us understanding and convict us where we need convicting and, and comfort us where we need comforting and help us see how we should apply your word to our lives. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. So my takeaways from this passage in Mark, about the rich young ruler, I mean, I, like you all, have probably read this story dozens of times, and um, from my youth up, I mean, I've I've read this story. I remember as a young person, my main takeaways, uh, well, I thought, well, this rich young ruler, his problem was he was greedy, and that's why he couldn't enter the kingdom of heaven. I also remember hearing multiple lessons, maybe... I don't want to say every single lesson I've heard on this, but, every, uh, but if not every single, close to every single lesson I've heard says, don't worry, you don't have to sell your possessions, which um, may or may not be true. Um, and so I remember thinking, uh, I wasn't rich. I didn't really know anybody who was rich. So I'll just store this little story away for any time. If in the unlikely event, I should become rich or I should meet somebody and I need to 
lovingly take them down a notch. Like, well, let me refer you to Mark 10 here. Um, so that's kind of where I filed this away. I recently have heard some lessons and have restudied this, and I, I think there's actually a lot, a lot of application that we all need to hear and apply to our lives. It applies directly to us. Um, frankly, I think there are probably many people just like the rich young ruler sitting in church pews today. Um, I think there are many people in Church of Christ church pews that are rich young rulers as well, that are just in the exact same plight. And I say that because I recognize those temptations in myself, and I, and I don't think I'm the only one. So let, let's talk about where that comes from. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the context before I get to the meat of this. So this one account we have of the rich young ruler is in Mark. It's actually recorded in three different Gospels. Um, Mark, I think, gives us a little bit more detail than others. I think that's interesting. There's a tradition that Mark is the Mark that we read of in Acts. And he recorded this Gospel, and he was getting most of his information from the Apostle Peter. So Peter would have been an eyewitness, and in my old job as a, as a trial attorney, I re would read eyewitness accounts all the time. I'd see like five different witnesses that talk about the same thing that they all saw. And they would more or less agree, unless somebody was just lying, but there'd be little details that somebody else would latch onto that somebody else wouldn't catch. And, and that's what you'd expect. In fact, there have been famous cases where, you, uh, where everyone, all, all witnesses gave the exact same testimony, exactly, and they're like, well, that doesn't seem quite believable. In fact, it seems like you've rehearsed this if you're all saying exactly the same words. And, and that's not what we see in the gospel. I think it's one of the reasons we have four gospels, four different perspectives on, on what happened. Um, specifically in the timeline of Christ's ministry, what's happening, I think they think he was on the east side of the uh, Jordan, and he was about to cross the Jordan near Jericho, which is a place, a great, good place to cross the uh, Jordan River. And he would be then on his way up into Jerusalem when this scene happened. Uh, if, okay, so that's what's going on. That's where we are in Mark when this, when this incident happens. Okay, so this guy, this rich young ruler, we don't know who he was. We don't know a lot about him. But let me tell you, if this young man were in our church today, we would be thinking, and we had you know, elders and everything, we would be thinking this guy is on the track to be a deacon. This is the guy who's got it squared away, right? Um, and he's not, sometimes if you read some of the other Gospels accounts that don't give quite as much detail as Mark does, you can come with, away with the impression that um, he's kind of waltzes up and says, hey, Jesus, you know, we... Uh, uh, I'm a pretty good guy, you're a pretty good guy, let's talk about godly things. And that's not what happens at all, though. We see in Mark, he actually runs up. He runs up to him and he kneels before him. Okay? This is, um, this is, this is showing some enthusiasm for, for Christ. Also, um, as a rich young ruler, so a person with authority, contrast this with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. When does he come? He comes in the middle of the night, Right? Because he's scared. This we see in, uh, back in 17, verse 17. Uh, it's as, as Jesus was setting out on his journey. He's on the open road. He's got his apostles around him. That's when the rich young ruler runs up to him. He's not scared of being seen. He's like, 
okay, I like this Jesus. This, this guy is enthusiastic uh, for Jesus. Also, we see he has a pretty solid handle on the scriptures in that he understood there to be an afterlife. Um, in first century Judaism, I don't know if this would have been a minority view, but I do know the, the biggest political party slash religious group were the Sadducees, and they controlled the temple. They, can, they were the ones that were in Titus with the Romans, and they did not believe in an afterlife. So this young man, he has a correct understanding of the Old Testament scriptures to know that he should be looking for a hereafter. That might have cost him. You know, if you're going against what the powers that be, and you have a different understanding, it'd be sort of like uh, being, uh, trying to you know, make it in the world politically or in the business world today and being an open, faithful Christian today. It'd be kind of like, it's not impossible. You could definitely do it. But you're going to have people that are going to be working against you if you do that today. So that seems to be the sort of person he was. Plus, he's got money. So this guy, we should definitely be a deacon in our church, right? Um, okay. So he runs up to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as he so typically does, answers his question with a question. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except for God. Well, what's, Jesus is giving him a little hint. He's not pushing him away. But he, he's, he's saying, like, there's, there's more to me than meets the eye. I'm not just another rabbi. He says, no one is good except for God. Why are you calling me good? The implication is, because I am the Son of God. Um, and after that little aside, he says, you know the commandments. Do not defraud, or do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal. Uh, he runs through these commandments, and these are basically what are known as the second tablet, or the second of the, of the Ten Commandments, is what he's running through, running through. As in, these are the commandments that they would traditionally think of the first tablet, which begins with, um, you know, honoring God, honoring the Lord your God, and, and um, having no idols. So the first tablet would be all those commandments that concern just God, the second table of commandments would be more the commandments that govern how we interact with each other, right? So Jesus is running through that second tablet. Uh, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor, do not defraud. Uh, honor your father and mother. Okay. And the rich young ruler's response, and this is where we get the first hint of trouble and what seems to be such a promising uh, episode, he says when, when Jesus gives him this list of commandments to do, he sort of acts like, too easy. You need me to keep the commandments? <sighs> I've got that. I've been doing that forever. Um, so a couple of things we can tell from that. One, this, either young, this young man either did not attend the Sermon on the Mount, or he wasn't paying attention during the Sermon on the Mount, because on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells you, tells us what these commandments are getting at. Um, he's saying, if you'll recall, when it says, do not murder, well, I'm telling you, don't get angry. That's on the same spectrum. If, in fact, if you were getting angry with your brother, it's a tantamount or just as though you've committed murder. Okay, do not commit adultery. Okay, but I'm telling you, don't lust. It's the same spectrum. You're on the road towards committing adultery. He's getting at the heart of the matter. Um, 
Now, Jesus... In a way, uh, I think obviously Jesus would have known he was going to respond this way because he's kind of like setting him up like an excellent or expert cross-examiner or a detective might, giving him some premises he would agree to. You agree to this? You agree to this? Well, what about this? Or my kids have recently discovered Columbo on, on the internet. And so if you recall at the end of every Columbo episode towards the end, they'd be like, there's just one thing I don't understand. And after he's been playing dumb the whole episode and he comes back, uh, and it solves the whole mystery right in front of you. Um, sort of like that. So it's a setup. I think, but if we see, as we see here in uh, verse 21, and Jesus looking at him, loved him, and then confronts him with, with the real problem. So it's a loving setup. He's, he's doing this for maximum effect. Um, so what is it that, or another way to think of it would be, the really good doctor, who comes in and says, oh, doctor, I'm not feeling so good. He says, really? What about this? No, not that. Well, what about this? No, not about that. Well, does it hurt if I put my finger right there? And then, oh, yes, that's, that's exactly where it hurts. And that's what Jesus does. Because the rich young ruler's problem isn't really what's going on on the second tablet of the commandments. He gets along well with others, right? He's not sinning against other people. However, he has a covetousness problem, right? He has let his wealth, his possessions, take the place in his heart that belongs only to God. He's made his wealth into an idol. So this is the biggie. This is the A number one commandment. If you look at Exodus 20, verses 1 and verse 20, we see the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Um. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water um, under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers uh, on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the main thing, right? If you recall, Jay had a really a great sermon a, a couple uh, weeks ago, when I, last time I was here before I was sick, I think, uh, talking about the greatest commandment, right? And the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? That's a sort of a restatement of, of the first of the, of the two uh, first two of the Ten Commandments, in a way. So how does that tie to idolatry? How is, how is wealth or covetousness, greed, how does that have anything to do with idolatry? A lot of you have probably already thought to, well, it's Colossians 3. And if you turn to Colossians 3 and verses 1 through 5, you see Paul writing there to the church at Colossae, and he says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is uh, your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desire, and covetousness, or some of your versions will say greed, which is idolatry. 
On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Okay? Um, so I think it's probably a pretty rare person who hasn't been tempted by covetousness. Uh, I, I would readily admit it's not everybody. I mean, some people, we all have different temptations that affect us differently. But I think everyone can probably say they've at least had some passing temptation of covetousness. It's where you're thinking overly long about what possessions you'd like to have or maybe just one possession that you really, really would like to have that. Um, and you find yourself daydreaming about it, planning how you get it, maybe making surprisingly detailed spreadsheets about how you can save up to get there sooner. Um, or if you've got this one more bonus, what, what that would be like. Uh, I think it would be pretty sobering. I know it would be for me if somebody were to keep a ledger of how much time I spent thinking or daydreaming about if I got this and then that, and then this would fall into place versus how much time I spent in God's word or how much time I spent in prayer. And if you think about that, that's a problem. Uh, it's a very, very common Go-to trick of the devil to use something that is natural, good, that is God-given, such as a desire for man to work hard to and earn by the sweat of his brow and to enjoy the fruit of the labor, his labor. That's a good thing. But when it starts to cross over into the, into the area where it's taking the place of, that God should occupy in your life, that's when uh, it becomes a problem. Okay, and so maybe the quick takeaway is Perhaps I just need to cut back on the time I think about that. Maybe, maybe I, you know, I'll watch fewer commercials about the fancy car I want, or I'll stop researching it, or looking at what interest rates, or, or whatever it is. I mean, that's, that's, that's okay. I can do that. But here's the other part, and this is a part I can identify with even more, more, and it's maybe best to think of it as the other side of the coin of, of covetousness. And it's, it's when you trust in your wealth. Um, so what would happen if you found yourself, and a good way to see if we're, if you're maybe trusting in your wealth more is put yourself in the rich young ruler's shoes for a minute. Okay. What if Jesus was pointing the finger at you and said, sell your house, empty your bank account, liquidate your 401k, give all of that to the poor, and then come follow me. That's what's holding you back. Woo. That's hard. That's really hard. That's, you might say, impossible. <laughs> that's like maybe a camel passing through the eye of a needle, right? That's, that's a difficult thing he's asking for you, of us. So why is it that, that this is so bad, that, that we should, is, is God against savings accounts? Is God against us being responsible with our money? Uh, saving for retirement? Um, no, I don't think the answer is that, but we see again and again and again warnings against taking and putting our trust in our wealth. We trust in God, not our bank accounts, right? Uh, and there's just scripture after scripture on this. If you turn to Proverbs 11 and verse 28, they read that whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. If you go, 
I'm going to go through these kind of quick, so don't feel bad if you can't keep up. If you turn to Job 31, there we have Job, who's, who's going through a really tough time with God. And he's making his case to God, and he's saying, you know, I, I am a righteous man. Uh, and one of the his points that he makes, he says in verse, Job 31, verse 24, If I have made gold my trust, or called fine gold my confidence, if I have rejoiced because my wealth was abundant, or because my hand found much. He, he's saying, I haven't done these things, God. I, I don't, I'm not trusting in my wealth. And he would have been one of the wealthiest people of his, of his day. If you turn to Psalms 52 and verse 6, there we see the psalm writer uh, saying, The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. Psalms 49 verse 5, why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches? I mean, and there were, you know, just dozens more references in the Old Testament. I'll give us one more in the New Testament this time. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17. There we read, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides for us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of of that which is truly life. So, you can see then why wealth is such a snare to us. Uh, covetousness, um, for me, that, that's not as big of an issue, but trusting in your wealth, that's a big issue. Thinking, if, oh, if I could just save a little bit more, or if I can get a few more years on this pension, then, then I'm set. Are you? Really? Uh, some of us in our grandparents' generation or that would remember the Great, great Depression, there were people that trusted in their wealth back then, and oof, gone. It's gone. And there's no reason that can't happen now. You, we are to look to God for our daily bread. And you can see why perhaps the uh, poor who don't have uh, as much and who are, have to look to God every day, God, one more meal, you can see why they trust God in a way that's more difficult for those of us that have a little bit more. Um, so I think... Am I telling you to go close out your bank accounts? Um, well, yeah. If, if wealth is sitting on, your, in, on God's throne in your heart, then yeah, do that. Um, I think the real answer, as we see in 1 Timothy 6, is Christ was illustrating the point there. And the, the point is, if you have wealth, you need to realize it's just something that's sort of loaned to you from God. It's something that needs to be used for his kingdom. That's not to say we shouldn't, so I'm not saying you shouldn't save for retirement, but I am saying what you have, you need to realize belongs to God and needs to be used for his kingdom. Okay, so let's move on to the next point. Um, And this is another point that just sort of recently dawned to me in my study of this. The rich young ruler, when he came up to Christ, um, He thought to come up to him, 
come up to Jesus as though uh, he's just another businessman making a deal, right? Let's strike a bargain. What do you need me to do? And we can see that if you turn back to Mark 10, verse 17. Um, should have marked it. He says, what must I do? And you get the impression that he expected him to say, like, uh, go build a synagogue or um, go set up a bread kitchen. And, you know, I think this guy, he would have been tithing, which would have been 10% of his income. I think I read recently that if you actually add up all the different taxes that you would have been obligated to pay, it's something like 28 to 30%. I think that's right, of your income, that you would, if you were a faithful Jew, giving everything you were supposed to give. It wasn't just the 10%. It was and add on the temple tax and all this. It, it, it'd be close to 30%, I think. So he's already giving a lot of his income, right? Uh, and, you know, I think if Jesus said, I think you need to give half, he'd be like, okay, all right, half. And the rest is mine. I'll do what I want with it. No problem. As in... Um, which is just the completely the wrong attitude to approach this with. And it's so interesting that we contrast that. If you look just the passage above, like uh, starting in Mark 10, verse 13, look at this, where it's talking about the little children. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, like a child, shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So that's what Jesus was looking for. Uh, not someone who was going to be his equal. Not someone who was going to strike a bargain, say, Let, what, do we, what do you need me to do for you, Jesus? I can do that. I understand I'm a little bit behind the eight ball on this sin issue, and we'll just do a few deeds. We'll even think of square up accounts, and then we're good. That is not how we approach the God of heaven. That is not how we approach our creator, right? This is not um, some, some deal, some bargain to be struck, that we're not God's equals. How, how do you... I mean, it's sort of natural, but how, do, but how do you convince yourself that you have kept the commandments, that you have done so good that, like, eh, I need a little bit of help just to get me over the line, but that's all I need. And I say, how do you convince yourself? But I think we and myself, I know we do this all the time. So what I'm asking is, how could that, um, the greatest commandment, we call it the greatest commandment, they would have referred to it as a Shema, which it's, and it's something they would have recited daily. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, and with uh, all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And how do, you, how do you recite that every day and say, Oh, yeah, I do that. Too easy. Yeah, you you kind of have to be fooling yourself, right? How do you say, like, uh, how do you sit through the, to the Sermon on the Mount and say, uh, Oh, anger is the same as murder. Okay, well, I just won't be angry anymore. Or, or, or lust or covetousness or, or any of these things. How do you convince yourself of that? And I think the way we do it 
is we sort of, uh, we like to talk about other people's sin and things that, like we all, like I said before, we all struggle with different sin. I remember when I was probably Henry's age, some of my favorite sermons were on sermons, were sermons on what other churches were doing wrong, right? Um, and why they were wrong. And those are sermons that need to happen. Those are, we need to have, have sermons about what is error and, and it needs to be corrected. But I ate them up because it's like, yeah, let those guys have it. Yeah, not, we got it figured out here. That's, that's not right, the right attitude. I, I was personally taking the wrong attitude to have on that. And I was a very obnoxious junior high student with my friends trying to tell them about the errors that they had in the churches they went. Um, so when we look at a, another example of how we fool ourselves with our own righteousness is we... we another example, of that, I, rem, I remember I knew one guy who was in jail. Uh, he was in jail... And he was eventually, and he was a convicted felon who committed crimes. And, but, and then what he heard in some context, somebody um, like went and had a drink somewhere. And like, I agree, drunkenness is wrong. But he heard, and he was like, oh, I would never, ever touch stuff. Like, well, guy, we got bigger problems here. You're, you're sitting in jail. You, you're, uh, so it's easy, and maybe just human nature, to, to think in terms of everyone else's sins are bigger. Also, we like to try and boil sins down to the externals, the things that we can see and measure very easily. So we like the don't commit adultery. Great. Been going almost 18 years now. No adultery, no problem. Don't see any problems going forward. Well, when you, when you start talking about lust, okay, well, that makes things a little more complicated. Murder, too easy. I don't think I'll ever murder anybody. I can't imagine murdering anybody. That's not going to be a problem. I've kept that from my youth. Anger? Ooh. How long can we go without being angry? Okay. It's sort of like we, we just don't understand the pervasiveness of sin. We're like fish in the sea, and we don't know we're wet, right? And we don't know we're wet because we've never really been outside of the water. That's how bad our sin problem is. We are in, live in a sinful world. We have been sinning for as long as we can remember. It's like, um, it, it's easy. It's easy to do. Um, it's easy that even as you're growing as a Christian, um, to have something point out to you, and be like, oh, I've been doing that for years. I didn't even think about that. And, and it's shocking. It should be. And, and so that's why any sort of this, any sense of this, let me approach God. And, and say, like, let's strike a deal. I'm righteous, pretty righteous, God. I just need you to bump me up a level. No, you have to come as a child. You have to come as someone who, who is uh, without hope, right? And you have to be willing to surrender everything, right? So um, as we're closing... Let's think about this. When I say surrendering everything, that's what Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler. And it wasn't so much that the wealth itself was, was the issue. It, it's anything that would stand in the way of you coming to God. Um, so what, what we're talking about with the gospel message, it's not something nice you should be doing. It's not like 
uh, eating right, getting moderate exercise. You'll just feel better if you, if you go to church. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, we're not talking about maybe posting some inspirational scripture around your house or on social media. We're talking about a total and unconditional surrender to God. Uh, where nothing, God will tolerate nothing else on his throne. You have to come to him as a child. So uh, if God is Lord of your life, that means he's Lord of your finances. It means he's Lord of your relationships. Um, it means he's the Lord of everything that you hold dear. And if your knee will not bow down to him in this life, well, it will in the next. And that's a terrifying prospect for us to think about. Um, so we can't hope to stand before God and demand justice. We need mercy. That's what we need. Uh, so if we turn to Romans 3 as we're closing today, we need to remember, um, again, Jesus looked upon the rich young ruler and he loved him. He showed him mercy. He thought, he knew, this is the kindest thing I can do to him, is point out to him exactly what's holding him back. And it's his wealth and the status that he derives from it. I've told the kids in the class before, um, I told you to turn to Romans 3. I've told the kids in class, some of the, one of the most important conjunctions you'll find in the Bible is but, because the picture is bleak, it's bad, if you read Romans 3, um, it's where we, just a portion of it. There's a litany of, of places that Paul has uh, kind of gone through the Psalms in the Old Testament, pulling out like you're sinful. There's like the asps, uh, the venom of asps is under your tongue. And he's talking about all of us. We're all so sinful, sinful. And all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if you look at Romans 3.21, we see that very important conjunction, but... But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. Now that's a fancy word, but it means that God put forward his own son to pay for us uh, by his son's blood. And we receive this redemption by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time. So that he might be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All right. So I said at the beginning, um, I think there are many people in the church today. Uh, many people sitting in church pews across this country today who are like the rich young ruler, who think that they have struck a bargain as an equal with God. And yet still, God has his area. I give him a few hours on Sunday. I give him some money. I generally refrain from the main bad things. The rest, that's my time. That is not how you approach it. That, if that's how you approached it, then you need to repent, okay? And I'll tell you the truth. We probably all need to repent from time to time of this. Because, um, and, and I'm not, and so I'm just saying it's something in your prayer life you need to address and, and repent. Now, some of us have never become a Christian, period, and have never repented, and have never put their faith in God, and have never been buried in the waters of baptism. And if that's the case, 
Well, I'm telling you right now, you have the opportunity to come forward while we're singing the song of invitation and make that right. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at mulvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.